So friends, here we are um, in chapter four of Jonah. So if you're following along online or here in person, feel free to get out your Bible apps and turn to Jonah chapter four. I'll have it up on the screen, but sometimes it's nice to follow along. And as you're doing that, I'll just uh, share this picture. Um, Does everyone know what building this is? Ikea, we don't have one here, but those of you, um, if you're watching online, it's a, you might know where it is because you might have one in your state. (laughs) I'm still lobbying for them to bring one here. But Dan and I were in college and we were setting up our first apartment together in Chicago and we were getting ready to get married and move in together and it was a really exciting time and this was also a time before GPS and smartphones. And we had the news that a, a giant IKEA had, um, had come to Chicagoland. We were really excited because it was a chance to, you know, furnish our apartment. And so we, we print out our directions on MapQuest or something, and we get in the car. And after a couple hours, we start to be able to see this large blue and yellow building in the distance. Right? So this is a signature, signature building. And, you know, as we got closer, we started getting excited about, like, cheap meatballs and, like, you know, sponges that cost a dollar. Like, wow, we're almost there. The problem was is no matter how we tried to get off the freeway, no matter what roads we took, we could never seem to get from where we were to the IKEA parking lot. It was, like, right there. We could walk there, but we couldn't get ourselves there. We were so close, yet we might as well have been miles away. We were so far away. We were so close, yet so far. We're going to hold on to that. So we're going to come back to that. Because over the past four weeks, we have been in the season of Lent, and we've been looking at this book of Jonah, one chapter a week. And Lent is the, the 40 days leading up to um, Jesus' death and his resurrection. We've been looking at Jonah's journey, and we've been seeing within it different aspects of our own journey, the way that we run from pain and God's invitation back, We saw how in chapter 2, Jonah was standing at a crossroads, and we looked at the crossroads in our life. We looked at a personal compass to help us see where we are in our present moment so we could say yes to God there. Last week, we took some time to assess the trajectory of our lives and to turn towards God in confession and repentance. Each week, we've looked at different practices that can help form and equip our life, our faith for life with God and others. Today, on this special Palm Sunday, We're looking into the final chapter in the book of Jonah. And the way things shake out between God and this prophet make this one of the most poignant books of the Bible, I think, for me. I was actually telling Dan um, that the character of Jonah reminds me a little bit of the character of Forrest Gump. I mean, they're really different, but there's just a couple similarities that were striking at me. And Forrest Gump, if you've ever watched this, it's like a very vintage movie now. I think it came out in the 90s. But Forrest is this individual who um, has a lot of challenges. He lives with a disability. His life is not, you know, a bed of roses, but everything he does seems to sort of turn out well. He runs from bullies only to discover that he's a champion runner, and he gets a college scholarship where he's able uh, to go to school. He gets drafted into the Vietnam War, and by happenstance, he's able to save this whole slew of people. He does get wounded, but he gets shot in the butt, and then he shows his scar to the president. <laughs> it's a very humorous moment in the TV, in the, in the, in the um, film. And um, as he's recuperating, right, because he can't lie on his back, he starts to play table tennis, and he becomes a table tennis champion. He goes all around the world, and he starts movements and catchphrases and strikes it big in the stock market. And he loves deeply a love that is eventually reciprocated. And although some that might, might have thought that his life with the unique challenges he was born into might not be a life worth living, 
He lived a deeply loving life, full of belonging, and was able to pass that down to a son of his own. I'm not worried about spoiler alerts, because this movie has been around for like 30 years now. <laughs> From all this difficulty of his life emerges this, lo this love and positivity and success. There's a sort of magic about it. There's all this humor to his story, as well as real-life sadness. And Forrest, and those of us who watch this movie, Forrest Gump, we're able to feel all of it. You can kind of say it's even a happy ending. Now, Jonah, from the first moment we see him on the page, he's a humorous and sympathetic character. He's a faithful prophet of the Lord, but when he's told to preach to his people's sworn enemy, the Ninevites, who've harmed his people for centuries, Jonah decides to run from the presence of the Lord, which is a vast comedic impossibility. How do you even do that? He runs from the presence of the Lord and books, books a, um, a ticket straight to a vacation spot when this huge wind comes, a big storm, and the ship thinks it's going to break apart. The ship is actually personified in the Hebrew, thinks it's going to break apart, but somehow Jonah's sleeping. He's not even awake. You know, he has to be shaken awake, and um, he finally shares what's happening to him, to the crew, and the crew all decide to suddenly follow God. All these pagan sailors are like, we'll follow God, even though Jonah doesn't tell them anything much about God, doesn't even give them a call to salvation. They just turn right on the spot, and he gets thrown into the water at his own request, and a fish hears the word of the Lord and comes to swallow him up and be an instrument of salvation, takes him back to dry land. Somehow Jonah and the fish survive. And then he obeys God's call finally. He walks into the city, just, you know, a measly one day's walk. It's this huge city. He preaches a very well-thought-out sermon of just five words. And the entire city, everybody comes to God. The king, the leaders, women, children, even the animals. Wherever Jonah is going, wherever he's bumbling along, people and animals are turning to God and listening to God and deciding to change for the better. There's so much humor, this wonderful grace-filled magic to the story. In spite of the backdrop of pain, we know he and his people have suffered from the Ninevite people. And at the end of the story, his mission is successful. God does the good work God wanted to do all along, saves the people of Nineveh from the consequences of their actions. Disaster earned is mercifully averted. It's a happy ending. Except for Jonah, it's not a happy ending. We find here in our text that Jonah's worst fear has come true. This is where the story takes a turn. Let's go ahead and read Jonah chapter 4. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish, right, God saving Nineveh. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, but you did not tend it or make it grow. 
It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the end of the book, the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jonah has come so far. Although he initially ran, he told the truth about his running. He told the sailors what they needed to do to stop the storm. He turned to God in his darkest moments there in the belly of this fish when he could have abandoned God for abandoning him. He followed the second call of God to go preach to Nineveh. He preached a true sermon, showed his call as a true prophet of God. All this good has been unleashed on the story, and Jonah's so close to it at every single point in the story. You'd think that now Nineveh has repented and been spared the consequences of their violence. Jonah would be in on the joy. He'd be in on the magic. He'd be celebrating and part of the party. He's so close to that joy. He's so close to the deep good of what God is doing, but he's so far from being able to join in with what God is doing all around him. He's so close, but he's also so far. Verse 3, he says, Lord, take away my life. It's better for me to die than live. He's so far, he's even divorced from the deep good within his own soul. He's despairing. And this is where the story really hits home for me, how close he is all the good he did, and yet how far he is from embracing God's love, God's goodness, God's work in his life and in the world. And friends, sometimes we're, we're more like the people of Nineveh. We know we're on a trajectory towards certain disaster, and we take the chance God gives us. Yep, time to make a U-turn here, and it's a great party. Yay, we're saved. Sometimes we're a little bit more like Jonah. We've made many right choices, often done the right thing, helped others, and yet we're so far from our allowing ourselves to become part of the party. When push comes to shove, we can't embrace the good work of God around us. If we had to be honest, we'd say there's a side of us that's wounded and angry, angry at God, angry at others, maybe even despairing. We are strained from our heart's true home in God, where there's peace, love, joy, kindness, patience, self-control, forgiveness, love. And God, in this story, does not force Jonah to embrace God. God does not force Jonah into an uneasy reconciliation, but God does take steps to close the gap, to move closer. God moves towards Jonah, and God moves towards us, wherever we are, when we are stuck, when we are so close yet so far, when we cannot embrace God's good work. Let's go ahead and just look at a couple things in this chapter as we look at what it means to form a faith that can embrace God's good work, that can embrace God's healing, God's redeeming, God's good change in the world. Forming a faith that embraces God's good work, first one in your notes, means unmasking our idols and our false gods. Forming a faith that embraces God's good work means unmasking our idols and our false gods. Even though Jonah did the right thing, right? He went to Nineveh, he shared the message. You know, we can kind of tell throughout the story that something's just not quite right with him. He's not okay. And here God lovingly sort of digs beneath the surface, beneath the soil of his heart, and brings Jonah to a place where his true allegiances are unmasked, where his wounds are revealed. Here we see the things that Jonah really cares about kind of bubbling to the surface. And this is where God wants him. This is where God wants all of us. Um, there's this philosopher, Paul Tillich, and he taught that everyone must live for something so that life has meaning. So he basically said that everyone has an ultimate concern. This ultimate concern is what gives life meaning, and we all have an ultimate concern. 
And um, here we see in the book of Jonah, sort of Jonah's own ultimate concern bubbling to the surface. Now, the book of Jonah is not the only place where we see about Jonah, because he's actually a prophet of God written about in the book of 2 Kings. In the book of 2 Kings, I believe it's chapter 14, verse 25, he preaches a message of restoration to a very sinful king. He basically preaches that God is going to make Israel great again and expand her borders, and that's what happens. Israel's borders are, are, are made large again, and he's a very popular sort of patriot prophet. Right? This makes sense, then, why he wouldn't want to go to Nineveh, right? Because these are the people that, as every, every Jewish person reading this story knows, these are the people who destroyed 10 out of the 10 twelves of 12 tribes of Israel. These are the people that laid siege to Jerusalem, that carried them away as captives. So this is the worst thing he can imagine, this patriot prophet having to preach to them and them becoming saved. He doesn't want to do it because for Jonah, his ultimate concern was his country, for their country's enemies to get what was coming to them. His good and true love for his country becomes twisted, becomes his ultimate concern, becomes an idol, and it keeps him from connecting with God and others. What's our ultimate concern? What's something you bump up against that keeps you from celebrating and embracing the work of God? For some of us, the ultimate concern is the bottom line. Well, if I embrace this work of God, how much is this going to cost me? For some of us, the ultimate concern is, um, is, is our family or maybe our plans. If I say yes to this, how is this going to impact my family? How is this going to impact the plans I'm making for the future? And all these are really legitimate and good questions to ask. If they become the ultimate concern, we've made an idol out of them. And idols get in the way. They keep us from embracing the good work God is doing because idols, they demand their own allegiances. They demand their own, their own sacrifices, their own priorities, their own way of ordering the world and making sense to it. And God wants to unmask these idols so that we can embrace the good work of God. God also wants to unmask our false or counterfeit gods. Now you might be thinking, isn't an idol the same thing as a counterfeit god? An idol the same thing as a false god? They're very similar, but I want to unpack a little bit of a distinction here. I would say that idols are anything that kind of gets in the way, that gets our attention, our honor, our allegiance instead of the one true God. But if we had examined it a little more closely, these ultimate concerns of ours, we'd be able to say, yeah, that's an idol. Yeah, it kind of feels like a, a wooden block. Yes, it's made of stone. This is not the one true God. So our idols, if we take a closer look, we'd be able to know they're an idol. Now, a false or counterfeit God, that's more sneaky. That's a little harder to, to decipher because a false or counterfeit God is a God that in our mind takes the place of the one true God. And so for Jonah, he would rather serve the counterfeit God of actions and consequences, the God who meets out judgment to people who deserve it. That's the counterfeit God that Jonah would rather follow. But it's a counterfeit God because here at the end of the story, Jonah finally admits yeah, I know who you really are. You are a God of mercy, a God of compassion, slow to anger, abounding in love. And that's the God, the one true God. It's a little harder for Jonah to follow. And here God wants to unmask our idols, those things that we're following, those ultimate concerns. God wants to unmask our counterfeit gods, the, the, the things we're setting up in our mind that are actually not the one true God, because God calls us to be with God, and those things get in the way. They get in the way of our knowing God. They get in the way of our embracing God's good work in us and in the world. They keep us so close, yet so far away. 
Today, as we all know, and you all have your palms, and if you are at home and you don't have any palm branches, um, I was reminded by Neil this morning that you do have these palms. So you have some kind of palms today to wave. Um, so whether you're here or, or at home, you have palms for this Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday, and it is a day of celebration. It's a day where we remember Jesus riding into Jerusalem and being welcomed by the crowd, by the children, as he begins his road to the cross. The crowd is filled with all kinds of people, people in all stages of life, all welcoming the living work of God in their world to heal, to mend, to save. But just a couple days later, another crowd gathers united with the imperialistic power of Rome. That crowd rejects Jesus' actions and God's work through him because they were stuck with their counterfeit vision of God. They wanted no part in a God who did not fit their theological framework, who didn't behave the way they thought God should behave. They were beholding to a counterfeit God who fit into their vision, who fit into their identity politics, who fit into their hopes and dreams for the world. Because of this, that crowd couldn't embrace God's good work in the world. In Scripture, we see Friday's crowd choosing Jesus Barabbas over Jesus of Nazareth as Jesus, who embodies every good work of God, is sentenced to death. Friends, what false or counterfeit God are you tempted to serve? The God who supports the causes you do? I'm tempted to serve that God. It's the counterfeit God you're tempted to follow, the God who doesn't ask too much of you? Maybe, maybe that God is a bit like a well-trained pet, brings you warm fuzzies, is fun to be in company with, but doesn't ask too much of you. What false or counterfeit God are you more likely to follow? The one true God of mighty mercy and rescue brings Jonah and brings us to places where our idols, where our counterfeit gods can be unmasked. And God does this so the distance between us can be bridged. So forming a faith that embraces God's good work also means reckoning with our wounds that keep us stuck. Forming a faith that embraces God's good work in the world means reckoning with our wounds that keep us stuck. So Jonah, Jonah goes outside the city, right? Jonah's waiting for it to be destroyed. And God tries to dialogue with Jonah about what's behind this very strong emotion that he's feeling. We see in verse 3, um, I'm just going to, Quickly go to the next slide here. In verse 3, Jonah says, Take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And God says, Is it right for you to be so angry? And Jonah doesn't answer, because Jonah doesn't want to talk about it. Jonah is so angry. The thing that is bothering him is so big, he does not want to have a conversation with God about it. And what is, what is he stuck in? He's stuck in deep wounds. Underneath all that anger is deep grief. God, you saw what these people did to my people, and you're going to go ahead and save them anyway? They're the bad guys. Jonah does not want to talk to God. And this is where God gets really creative, and this is where the plant and the worm come in and the wind. And I have to say, I have to say thanks to Dar Nakagawa, who came up with our logo for this series. You notice our logo, it looks a little bit like a, like a fish, but it also looks a little bit like a plant. And, and that's because here, you know, bookended at the beginning of Jonah, we have this fish that sort of is sent by God to give Jonah a chance to be saved, a chance to turn around, 
right? It swallows him out of the water. He's not drowned. And here at the end of the story, bookended, we have this plant that gives Jonah a chance to be saved from the hot, hot sun and a chance to be saved inside, to be turned, to be transformed. Here we have this fish. We have this plant. As God gives Jonah all these chances to change. And so after the the plant is chewed on by a worm and withers, I want to draw our attention to the conversation he has with God because Jonah's all angry now that the plant is gone. So Jonah, he starts where he left off. Take away my life, for it's better for me to die than live. So he picks up exactly where he left off. And God says, is it right for you to be angry? Oh, that's where we were at. Okay, so that's where we were at before the plant and the worm. Got it? Take away my life. God says, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah is silent. Then we have the plant and the worm. Second thing, Jonah says, it would be better for me to die than live. That's where he picks up again. And God says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Do you notice that? God's patience and creativity. Jonah can't talk about the big thing, the thing beneath the thing. So instead, God brings Jonah to a place where they can kind of talk about it. Instead, they're talking about a plant. It's a little less scary. Jonah can do that. I love God's patience, God's creativity here to say, yeah, I, don't, I know you don't want to talk about that. Maybe there's another way, another way we can do this. And sometimes there's something that seems just too, too big, too awful for us to begin to talk about. And God might patiently and creatively bring opportunities for us to have conversations that lead us into the larger matter at hand. Friends, Jonah was stuck. Is there any place in your life where you feel stuck? Maybe there's a wounding that you need to name. God invites Jonah to name the pain he feels over what happened to his people by their enemies so that his bitterness toward God for loving their enemies can be addressed. Can you name your pain? Can you name the the thing underneath the thing? What's under the anger? What's under the stress or bitterness? Can you bring it to God and be in conversation about it to God? Or will you remain isolated? As, as COVID uh, precautions just uh, slowly begin to drop and as, um, you know, COVID becomes a little less of a concern, there are wounds that need to be named. I saw this meme the other day that says, we're still friends, but I'll never forget how you behave during a global pandemic. And then I went back to find it, and of course I couldn't find it. It was like midnight last night, and I'm going through memes. I'm like, you know what, this is just too distracting. It's somewhere out there, you might come across it one day. We're still friends, but I'll never forget how you behaved. And it made me realize, you know, there's all these groups, all these groups of of us out there, all these groups of humans, people who've lost loved ones, people who are deeply wounded at how other people acted. There's there's groups of people that are upset, upset that, you know, that they chose not to get vaccinated for, for reasons that were real and important to them, and they feel like they were left out. They feel like it was difficult for them. There's people who got vaccinated and were upset with people who didn't, said, you're part of the problem. There's all these groups with deep wounding. Not to mention those who, many, millions, who've lost loved ones. Friends, how can we face some of the wounding we've experienced over the last two years? Be in conversation about it to God with safe other people. Because God doesn't give up on us. Doesn't leave us alone in our isolation, in our bitterness and anger. God invites us to move through where we're stuck. So forming a faith that embraces God's good work, it means unmasking our idols and counterfeit gods. It means reckoning with our wounds that keep us stuck. And lastly, in your notes, forming a faith that embraces God's good work means letting God envelop you within God's life of radical belonging. 
That's a mouthful. Forming a faith that embraces God's good work means letting God envelop you within God's life of radical belonging. Last month in March was the 54th anniversary of the My Lai massacre in the town of My Lai in Vietnam. One day there was this army helicopter pilot, American army helicopter pilot. His name was Hugh Thompson. And he was assigned with providing air cover for his fellow soldiers on the ground who were charged with seeking out enemy combatants in a village called Milai that they thought was hiding them. He tells the story of hovering over the village in his helicopter, and he gets confused when he sees just hundreds of bodies in ditches and lined along the road, many of them heavily bleeding, some moving, some dead. Babies, young children, old men, old women, young women, but none of them were enemy combatant age. And a slow horror begins to sweep over him as he realizes that it was his fellow American soldiers who were systematically hunting down and killing every civilian in the village. By the time he got there, over 500 men, women, babies, and children had been massacred. He wound up bringing his helicopter down and he got between a group of women who were trying to hide and his fellow American troops. And he said, you fire on them, we'll fire on you. He radioed in distress to report what was happening. And then he began shuttling some of the people who were still alive out of the village to get them to safety. Hugh Thompson stopped the killings that day. Although he went on to be a kind of pariah. People didn't want anything to do with him. After he testified with what he had seen in front of Congress, some threatened unsuccessfully to have him court-martialed. They're like, you, fired on, you were threatened to fire on your own people? And the officer who ordered the men into the killings of the village was backed by a lot of public opinion at the time, even had a top 40 song written about him called The Battle Hymn of This Man. Doesn't even need to be named. He was eventually court-martialed. He was sentenced to 10 years of hard labor, and eventually they commuted his sentence down to just a couple years of house arrest. Meanwhile, Hugh Thompson, who was a hero, finished out his time in the military, but he lived with a great deal of distress over what he had seen. On the 30th anniversary of the massacre, he was brought back to Milai to help dedicate a children's school and to be part of a commemoration honoring those who had, been, who had been killed that day. And one of the women he saved that day asked him this question, came up to him as they were talking, and she said, why did the people who committed these acts come back with you? Hugh Hugh Thompson was dumbstruck. He said he had this horrible feeling. He didn't know what to say. And she went on and said, why didn't they come back with you? So we could forgive them. Friends, Jonah and the survivors from among his people, they had been through a lot at the hands of Ninevites. And yet, unlike this woman from Milai, Jonah could not quite get to that point of release and forgiveness for those who had committed horrors against his people. And the story ends with God's ringing question. You had compassion on the plant, Jonah. Should I not have compassion on these people who do not know what they are doing? And although Jonah does not answer the question, his people kept this story alive, the story of a mighty mercy, almost too big to handle, who invites a radical belonging and embrace towards friend and enemy, towards those who should not receive mercy, yet receive it anyway, those who should not be forgiven, yet are loved and held in God's compassion anyway, bringing enemy 
and neighbor together in a radical belonging. The heart of God's identity as Trinity is community, right? Which is why God forms us for deep belonging. God draws us from everywhere we're from, from everything we've been through, sowing wholeness from the fragments of our cultural stories and from our wounds. And here we are at the end of the book of Jonah, but not at the end of Jonah's journey. His journey continues, and so does ours. As I mentioned earlier, each week we've had a specific spiritual practice highlighted to equip us for a life of faith. We learned about the welcoming prayer from Pastor Dan in Jonah chapter 1. In Jonah chapter 2, we used a spiritual compass to, as a guide for saying yes to God in all the aspects of our life. Last week, we prayed the prayer of confession and repentance. And there's two spiritual practices for us to try this week. One of them is the practice of detachment. This replaces the attachment to idols and a self-serving life. It replaces that with a wholehearted attachment to God and God alone. The second one is a prayer of recollection. This connects us with the reality of God who is present in and with us. You should have received those two handouts. There's actually like eight pages. There's four pages for each one when you first entered. And if not, we'll make sure that we have them available for you as you leave. Two practices. You can pick one and try it this week. Inviting yourself to be recollected, drawn into the heart of God. Practice of recollection. You practice detachment. There's a couple of ways to practice it too, because you're like, how do I practice that? I don't know. That's why there's some really wonderful people that give us all these different exercises we can try. Um, as we seek to be people who can embrace God's work, who can be part of God's radical belonging, a, bl- a belonging full of mighty mercy. On Friday of this week is Holy Week. It is, is Good Friday. Friday of this Holy Week is Good Friday. And this is where we see Jesus Christ, where Jonah ended up. We see Jesus Christ on the outskirts of, his, of a great city. Except that the destruction that Jonah waited for Jesus received in his own body. To show God's true heart and the nature of mercy, Jesus was willing to do anything. He fully embraced God's work. He is the plant that bloomed and died, the seed that was buried and came to life again. Jesus is the mercy of God that blows where it will. He is the prophet who faithfully gives us God's good news, even to the beloved enemy. He is the one that descended to the bowels of the grave as they enclosed around him like ribs of a fish, so that not just a city, but so that all of creation could be saved saved. Jesus does the impossible to bring all of creation into harmony with God, fully living God's good work and who he was and how he was. Friends, the question for us today is the same as it was for Jonah, the same as it was for the people of Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday. Will you let God's mighty mercy embrace you? Can you cultivate a faith that embraces God back, that embraces God's work? Whether you're close or far, or so close yet so far, God has gone the distance and will go the distance for you. Let's pray. God, we feel the weight of your mercy upon us. The weight of the forgiveness you offer, it is one that is not without cost. Just as it costs real people in our world, real 
emotional work, spiritual work, to forgive, to be reconciled, to embrace your good change in the world. It cost your son Jesus everything he had to bring us into a life of forgiveness, to bring us to a place where we could be a part of God's radical belonging, to bring us to where we could embrace God and God's good work in the world. If for some reason you, you stumbled on us online and you are, you're watching today, or maybe you're here in person and you don't yet know this God, this God of mercy, then I invite you to pray a simple prayer. Jesus, Son of God, I welcome you into my life, into the core of who I am, just as that crowd welcomed you that first Palm Sunday. Come in to all of who I am. Forgive me. Make me whole. Weave me as part of your wonderful tapestry of belonging. Bring me to yourself and to others so I can be part of your good work. If you're here and you're feeling the weight of mercy on you, this is a wonderful time to come to the one true God and say, thank you. I see what you've done. I move towards you to embrace you, to be caught up in your life of radical belonging. Help me forgive like you forgive. Help me love like you love. Help me to walk with Jesus even when it costs me too. And if you're listening and you, there's really no prayer you can pray right now, you're just stuck. May God's Holy Spirit come around you. May God weave those words of life to keep the conversation going so that you don't have to be far away. You can be close and even closer still. We ask all our prayers, those spoken and those left unsaid, in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Hosanna in the highest. Amen.